Today we are continuing our study in the book of Ezekiel. Bring the monitor down on this mic, please. Through Ezekiel, God revealed His intent to bring back honor to His name by restoring His people to the promised land and blessing them. Through Ezekiel, God also emphasized His sovereign power over Israel as well as His faithfulness to, faithfulness to the covenants and the promises that He had made to them. God's restoration of Israel that was promised through several of the prophets, but specifically Jeremiah and Ezekiel, began almost 50 years after the capture of Jerusalem and the deportation of the last Israelites to Babylon. Remember, the Israelites were taken out of Judah in different groups. And the restoration of Israel actually started around 50 years after the capture of Jerusalem and the deportation of the last group. In 539 B.C., the Persian king named Cyrus conquered the Babylonian Empire. You remember that going back to history a little bit, the Assyrians had conquered the northern portion of Israel, which was known as Israel, and taken them captive. They tried to take the southern portion, which was called Judah, and it didn't work. <clears throat> but then eventually the Babylonians took over the Assyrians and defeated the Assyrians. So now the Babylonians controlled Israel, and they in turn went in and took over Judah. So now they own both the north and the south portions of the country of Israel. And so the Babylonians were in control. They took the people into Babylon as slaves, exiles. And then eventually, in 539, Cyrus, the king of Persia, conquered the Babylonian Empire. So now Cyrus is over everything. All the smaller groups have taken over each other. And now one big country has taken over all the other empires. Cyrus gave the exiled people such as the Jews, and keep in mind they had, they had taken a lot more countries and a lot more people into captivity other than just the Jews, but he gave all the exiled people, including the Jews, the option of staying where they were or returning to their homelands. In 538 B.C., Cyrus issued a decree that allowed the Jews to return to Judah to rebuild their temple that had been destroyed by the Babylons, Babylonians. Remember, when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, they tore the temple to the ground. They flattened the city walls. They tore down the temple. They completely destroyed everything that was in the city. And so now here's this king that has defeated the Babylonians, and he's saying, not only are you free to go, but you're free to go back to your homeland and rebuild your temple and reestablish the ways that you were living before you went into exile. The next year, King Cyrus appointed a Jewish exile named Sheshbazar, governor of Judah. Sheshbazar actually led a group of exiles back to Judah. Another group went with Zerubbabel. And then Ezra, the priest, escorted returnees back to Jerusalem with the intention of, of reviving religious practice. So you had a group that went back for the temple to rebuild the temple. You had a group that went back specifically to restore the religious practices of the Jews. And then in 445 B.C., Nehemiah led back a group of Israelites, and their specific task was to rebuild the walls. So once this was done, then they would be complete. 
A city was not complete without walls. So we see that all the prophecies were being fulfilled just as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Nehemiah, Ezekiel, and other prophets had said they would come to pass. And I want to start reading today in Ezekiel 36, 22, and 23. And therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name which you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am God, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. I will show the holiness. We just read that. Thank you. This was not the first time that this message, or a similar message to this, had expressed. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 9, the, the prophet delivered a similar message in which the Lord told the people that this was not the first time that their people had been delivered from captivity. Ezekiel went all the way back to the time that the people were in Egypt and they had become slaves, and he was reminding them one more time that you have been in captivity before. I have delivered you from that captivity before. He reminded them that years before, he had brought their ancestors out of Egypt, and it was for the same reason. Look what he said. He said it was for the sake of my name to keep it from being profaned. Because what had happened, the Egyptians had laughed at a God that was not powerful enough to rescue his people from captivity. The Egyptians could say, how can you talk about how powerful your God is if you're in captivity here and you're our slaves? Obviously, our gods are more powerful. So God cleared his reputation in a pretty extravagant way. Plagues and the exodus of the people led by Moses. And now God was going to do a similar work by bringing the Israelites out of the lands of their captivity and restoring them to their promised land. Remember, this is the same land that God promised them when they left Egypt. The whole reason for coming out of Egypt was to go to a land that God had promised them that would be theirs. And now that they've been there for several hundred years, they've gone right back to doing the same old things. They've been taken captivity again, and here they find themselves slaves one more time. And God is reminding them of this scenario and saying, I rescued your ancestors one time and I restored them to the place where they should be and I will do the same thing for you. God's acts of, of deliverance in the past, in the present and in the future, revealed his, his true character and his great name. Look what the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 48, verses 9 and 10. For my own name's sake... I delay my wrath. Why? For my, my name's sake. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you so as not to cut you off. See, I have refined you, though not as silver, I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, and he repeats it, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. So God is saying, all of these things that I'm doing are for the sake of my name. 
And we'll get into that in just a second. Psalm 23 and 3, a verse that is in a passage that we're very familiar with. Look what David wrote. He said, He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. Both Isaiah and David understood the, the greatness of the name of the Lord. They understood, I believe, when they could write something like this, they understood why God had given Moses the commandment and the law that there should be no other gods worshipped except the one true and living God. God said back in Isaiah that He wouldn't let any of this stuff that they were doing defame His name. As Jeremiah had previously prophesied, the Babylonian exile would not last forever. Remember, Jeremiah said, you are going to be taken captive. The Babylonians are going to destroy your city. But it won't be forever. There will come an end. There will come a time of, of restoration. And Ezekiel was commanded in, in Ezekiel 36 and 1 to prophesy to the mountains of Israel and tell them that this nation of Israel would be restored. According to Ezekiel's writings in the next several verses, he said that scorn would be turned on those that mocked God's power when he judged Israel's enemies. And in the promised land, in verse 10, towns will be inhabited and ruins rebuilt. Yes, there might be a time of correction. Yes, there might be a time of judgment. And, but God wanted this to be known. The only reason Israel's enemies had taken them captive was that he had allowed it. It wasn't that the enemy's gods were more powerful. The only reason that God had allowed all these things to happen was because of their sin, and because of their sin, he allowed their enemies to conquer them. But to show that he was God, he would also restore them. Ezekiel called himself a spokesperson for the Sovereign Lord. And it's interesting that this title for God is used 217 times in the book of Ezekiel. Now how does that stack up with the rest of the Old Testament? In the entire rest of the Old Testament, it's used 103 times. So Ezekiel was obviously trying to make a point that this is the Sovereign God. Sovereign God meaning He is over all. All of this is His. The title was used specifically to emphasize God's sovereign authority over Israel and His faithfulness in keeping the covenant promises He had made with His people. Israel's pagan neighbors evaluated the character of Israel's sovereign God by the actions of His people. Let me say that again. Israel's pagan neighbors evaluated the character of Israel's sovereign God by the actions of His people. And sadly, that main characteristic of God's people was not faithfulness. It was rebelliousness. And because of Israel's detestable practices, God's holy name was profaned. It was made common and vulgar in the sights, in the eyes of the surrounding pagan nations. Not because of anything God had done wrong, but because of the life the Israelites, had repre who represented Him, were living. 
God had done nothing wrong. He was still the same yesterday, today, and forever. He would never change, never had. But the, the way that the people looked on, on their God was because of their lives. Because they were His representatives. And as far as they could tell, Israel's God was no different than theirs. As a result, when God restored His people as a nation, it would not be for their sake, but for His sake. And that's what Ezekiel wanted to make plain. Yes, I will restore you. God is saying, I will restore you. I will bring this back. I will give you your land again. But just let's make it clear, it's not for your sake. It's for mine. Because you've ruined my name. It was God's character that required vindication. The only thing that the Israelites' neighbors saw of their God was how they lived. Think about that for a minute. They never saw Israel's God, but they saw the Israelites. And if these are the people that worship this God and this is how they act, then that must be how their God is. And it isn't a whole lot different today. Many people will never set foot in a church Many people many people will never set foot in a church, but they will see how you live your life. And they will know if your life is any different than theirs. I've said it many times before, if people look at us as Christians and they don't see a life any different than the one they are living, why would they want to be like us? Let me say that again. If people look at us as Christians and they don't see a life any different than the one they're living, why would they want to be like us? And that's kind of what Israel's neighbors were saying. You don't live any different than we do. To them... And to people that see us, put that on pause for a minute. I'm just not going to fight with a microphone this morning. Test one, one. See us live a life that's any different. To them, our God is no different than whatever they have chosen to serve as their God. How can we talk of redemption if we don't live as if we've been redeemed? 
How can we talk of being forgiven if we continue to live our life the same way that we did before we were saved? How can we talk of a powerful God if we live a powerless life? Just as in Ezekiel's day, our God is judged by those around us by the way that we live for Him. Because for most people, that's the only reflection of our God that they see is us. While in Ezekiel's time, Israel had caused God's holy name to be profaned among the nations... had caused God's name to be profaned. When, when the Lord restored His people back to Israel, back to their homeland, it would be a completely different matter. According to Isaiah, when the Redeemer comes to Israel in Isaiah 60 and 1, His blessing or His light will fall on Israel. And in return... Israel would shine or reflect the spiritual truth and the glory of God on the Gentile nations. In other words, when they returned back to Jerusalem, God's light would shine on them, and as His light shined on them, they would reflect that light to their neighbors. See, what would be different about that is they were never a reflection of God's light before. They had gotten dirty. They had gotten soiled with the, the things of the people around them. And if you have ever worked on any type of lighting, you know that one of the most important things is the reflection that it gives. If you look inside a flashlight and you take the, the initial plastic piece off of the outside, what's behind the bulb is a shiny chrome piece that's a reflector. Without that reflector, without that reflector, you won't get much light. You'll get a little tiny light bulb, and that's all you'd see. And what God was saying here is that when you return, my light will shine on you, you will be a reflection of me, and the people around you will see that I am the real God. And that would in turn restore his name among the heathens. In Ezekiel 20, 36 and 23, the word holiness is essentially the same word as righteousness. And central to the meaning of, of both words is the concept that which is in harmony with the character of God Himself. In essence, holiness involves purity and love that is the very nature of God. And if that's the case, then naturally it it implies the absence of any and all forms of evil. Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 32. For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you 
and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and make it plentiful and you will not bring famine and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds and you will loathe yourself for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake, declares the sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, O house of Israel. God assured the Israelites that he would keep his part of the covenant bargain. And he would do this by restoring them to their former state of prosperity in the land. In Bible days, the possession of land was a crucial issue for individuals and nations. Without a homeland, without a land that you owned and could call your own, national identity for a people was virtually impossible. And we see that today still is carried on in the culture because if you look at most of the problems in the Middle East, it's over who owns a portion of land. And in fact, if you look between Israel and, and the Palestinians, that is the entire argument of who what land and who is entitled to what parts. After their exile, the people of Israel finally rejected their practice of idolatry. When they came back to God, they gave up the practice of idolatry. And it was never again to be the problem that it had been in the nation's beginning. But God wasn't finished. An even greater transformation was yet to come. Verse 25 says that God would cleanse His people of their sin as He would sprinkle clean water on them. Well, what, what does that mean? When God said that He would sprinkle clean water on them, it symbolized more than just a forgiveness of all the things they had done wrong. The symbolism comes from the ritual washings that were supposed to remove ceremonial defilement. Before a priest could offer an offering, before a person could offer a sacrifice, there had to be this ceremonial washing that took place. And this is what God was saying. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. In other words, all of the things of the past... You've gone into exile, that was your judgment, that was your punishment. When you come back, I'll restore you to just like you had been before. Sound familiar? He said that he would also restore their fellowship with him as he permanently replaced their heart of stone with a heart of flesh. But the cleansing of the Israelites would only come about when they recognized and rejected their sin. I believe had they come out of Babylon, gone back to Jerusalem, and started up the same practices as before, that God would have allowed the exact same thing to happen again. The choice was theirs. They didn't have, first of all, they didn't have to leave Babylon. Remember? Cyrus gave them the option. You can stay here and live like you're living, or you can go back and restore your homeland. Once they got back, they had a choice. We go back to the way of serving God as we were before we went to, in exile, or do we go back to the way of our heathen neighbors? Still their choice. 
But when they recognized and rejected their sin, it was then and only then that Israel would be empowered to follow God's decrees and keep His laws. He said, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. If you remember, this is what Jeremiah referred to in Jeremiah 31 and 31. When we were studying the writings of Jeremiah, he said, Jeremiah said that a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. In other words, God was going to have a whole new covenant. This is going to be brand new. In its basic form, the word decree signifies an official law, a ruling of declaration pertaining to a particular subject. The issuing of decrees is presented in, in all of Scripture as essentially the right of, of someone who is in a position of royalty. When the Old Testament, God is referred to and regarded as the king of the earth, so he would have the authority and would be authorized to issue decrees. But in the theological sense of the word, it talks more of God's divinely established plans and purposes for all of mankind. What God is talking about here is that I have set a plan up. I have set up a plan of redemption. I have set up a plan of restoration. I have set up a plan of rebuilding for you to have your life completely changed. It's your choice to keep your part of the bargain. Remember Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 29 and 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, and plans to give you a hope and a future. God has a plan for us, and it's a good plan. God has things in our future that He wants us to accomplish, and they're good things. And He has promised that He will be with us, and it's plans to prosper us, and that doesn't necessarily mean to get rich, I'm not saying that, but plans to prosper us and give us hope in a future. But it's a decree or a covenant with us. And it's like any kind of contract that you enter into. It's between two people. And both sides, in order for that contract to be fulfilled, both sides have to keep their portion of the contract. Following the exodus from Egypt, God gave his people laws through Moses at Mount Sinai. And then following that, there were covenants that were made with, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And those covenants were renewed with, with all of Israel at one point or another. But as God's people, the Israelites were expected to obey his commands concerning not only worship and religious observances, but the whole conduct of their life. Remember, God's covenant was, I will do this if you will do this. What the Israelites wanted was, you keep doing what you're doing, and we'll go do whatever we want. And that wasn't the covenant. In today's society... If you sign a contract with someone and you don't keep your side of the bargain, then you are technically what's called in default of the contract. 
And because of that, the contract becomes void. And that's kind of what God was telling them. We had a covenant. You were supposed to serve me as your one and only God, as the true God, and you were supposed to be a reflection to all the people around of how great I am as your God. And instead, you've become like them. And so I'm going to allow you to be judged. And keep in mind that Israel's defeat had caused the neighboring people to ridicule and to scorn God. When they were taken captive, again, it was like the, the Egyptians. When the, the people of Judah and the people of Israel were taken captive, the people in surrounding nations were going, where's your God now? And there was famine that took place. And, and in that day, when a, a famine implied that a God was weak. And so they said, where's your God now? Keep in mind, I'll go back to this again. The only reason that Israel's enemies were able to defeat them was because God allowed it. There is no other way that they could have defeated God's people. But then for the glory of His own name, God says that He would cause the, the desolate flower, this, this flower out in the middle of nowhere, and He would cause Israel to, to become like it had never been before, to prosper, and He would remove all the disgrace that a famine brought on the people. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer any disgrace among the nations because of famine. And that would be a sign to the people of the surrounding nation of God's goodness to His repentant people. It would be a brand new, a wonderful land and a new people. And the surrounding people would know that God in His grace had restored His undeserving people. See, the difference in the God of Israel and all the other gods of the, the other nations is that the God of Israel could say, I'm going to do this. And it happened. And he could say, and then I'm going to fix it. And that would happen too. Ezekiel wrote that when the, the people of Israel recalled their, their former selves and how they had lived and their, their evil ways and their wicked desires and their wicked deeds they would see the stark contrast between their own merit and the matchless grace of God. They would know that, yes, we did wrong, and we were taken into captivity. But it was our God that delivered us. And when we look back at the lives we were living, we know how wrong we were. The problem with a lot of people in today's society is that they don't want to admit they're wrong in the way they're living. It's not very likely that you'll ask God to forgive you of something that you don't think is wrong. 
the work of, of renewal and restoration in our lives is the work of God alone. David recognized this. He wrote in Psalm 51, verses 10 through 12, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David understood this. He was asking God, fix me. There's stuff that's wrong here, so I'm asking you to, to take away the things that, that are, are bad in there and restore me to where you want me to be. But sometimes what we try to do is to fix up the outside before seeking God for the restoration that we really need. And if we're not careful, we become content with the way we fixed up the outside and we don't even seek any more of God. And our attempts at this make about as much sense as taking an old car without an engine and washing the wheel covers or the wheels really good in hopes that a prospective buyer might consider it more valuable that way. And they'll just overlook the fact that it doesn't have an engine. In the same way, we cannot make ourselves more attractive to God by attempting mere cosmetic changes. Surface fixes that look good on the outside but leave our hearts unchanged. When it comes to cars, there's a huge difference between a repaint and a restoration. You don't take a car up to Econo, put a $200 paint job on it, and call it restored. A restoration implies that the car was put back into its original, unspoiled condition. And only God can restore what is damaged. And too many times what we want is just a cheap paint job on the outside and leave the rest of it alone. Because to everybody else, it looks like it's been cleaned up pretty good. For far too many people, their salvation has become just that. Cheap paint job. When salvation is goes so much further than that, it goes to restoration. It goes to a change. Things are changed. The things that are broken, the things the, the things that are are rusted out when you're restoring a car. You get new ones and put it on there. If the Israelites, the people of Judah, had gone back to Jerusalem and said, you know what, I don't think we're really going to put back up the temple. Let's just put a tent. 
that's not a restoration. If they were going to go back and rebuild the temple, it needed to be rebuilt to its original splendor. And for us to think that we can come to God and ask for salvation, and all He does is just fix us up a little bit on the outside, we don't give God very much credit. You see, because all of those things, the fixing up on the outside, are things that we can do. And salvation is nothing that we can do. Our role is very simple. We come to Him, we humble ourselves before Him, and we submit to His gracious work of restoration. That's all we have to do. And once that work is underway, His blessings will overwhelm us and His name will be glorified in us. Just like the people of Ezekiel's time. As David wrote in Psalm 51 and 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare Your praise. No matter how hard the people of Israel and Judah tried once they were taken in captivity by the Babylonians, they were still in captivity. It was only the grace of God that could free them from their captivity and restore them to the land that had been promised to them. And it's only through the grace of God today that we can be set free from the captivity of sin and be restored to the place where God wants us to be. And when that happens, we can say as David, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. See, this is the continuation of what David wrote earlier when he talked about creating me a new spirit, creating me a whole new person. And when that happens, this is what I'll do. Yeah, but you don't understand my life. You don't know my past. You don't know the things I've done. You know what? All of that's true. But here's, here's another fact. God does know all those things, and He loves you anyway. The problem most of the time is that we limit God. Listen to this. Donald McCullough wrote these words. Any God I use to support my latest cause or who fits into my understanding or experience will be a God no larger than I and thus not able to save me from my sin or inspire my worship or empower my service. Any God who fits the contours of me will never really transcend me and never really be God. If you can fit your God into your understanding, then your God's not very big. And what we need to take from this is that is to remember that God is greater than we can ever conceive Him to be. So when it comes to restoration of our lives, we need to stop limiting the restoration of our life to what we can imagine and let God restore us to what He can imagine. I think it's vital for us to, to grasp this so that we can remember that when we think of God's ability to pick us up when we've fallen down, to restore our lives when we sit overwhelmed in the midst of our ruined life, that He is greater than all of those things. 
His infinite and incomprehensible grace provides the building material to reclaim rundown lives. Our righteousness? We don't have any. We don't have any righteousness in ourselves. The only righteousness that we can ever have is through Christ. And grace is an amazing thing. The concept of grace is that God shows us favor that we don't deserve. And as human beings, we just don't, we don't get that very well. Because generally we show favor to people that we feel like deserves that favor. But God is so different in the fact that, that He shows us favor when we don't even deserve it. And that's His grace. And to some people that just sounds way too good to be true. It sounds way too simple. And the truth of it is, it really is that simple. In fact, if someone once said, if in explaining grace, people respond that it can't be that simple, then you have probably explained it just right. The Israelites could go back and they could rebuild the temple of Jerusalem. They could go back and rebuild the walls of that great city. But only God could restore them back to be His people. When we realize the magnitude of what He has done and what He can do, we find it very simple at that point to say like David, Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. And when we come into His presence, we find it so simple to lift our hands and our hearts to Him in worship because we really realize what He has done. When we stop limiting God and His restoration of our life, our worship will increase. If we can't find anything to worship God about, If we can't find anything to worship God about, maybe it's because we've limited the restoration that He's been allowed to do in our life. But when we really just say, God, I'm just, a, I'm just an old broken down sinner. I need you to restore me. Not just an econo paint job, but a complete restoration. When we get to that point in our life, and God restores us back to Him and makes us just like new to what He originally intended us to be as His people, we find it so simple to worship because we realize that it's only because of His grace that we find freedom from the bondage of sin. And it's only by His grace that we find restoration to the place of where He wants us to be with Him. God bless you.